You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica flew solo in this interview, which is probably just as well, because I'm not sure I would have been able to get a word in. In this episode, you're going to hear some surprising insights into what drives the market in Sydney's Upper North Shore. Buyers don't know what Eastside Walk Rail is until they go to the Upper North Shore. (laughs) And there is a side of the highway you're supposed to be on and a side of the highway, if you tell your friends you live there, everyone sort of looks down their nose and goes, oh, okay. There are plenty of elephants making decisions here. And you'll want to stick around for this week's cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of Lynette Malcolm, sales agent and partner at Chadwick Real Estate in Sydney's leafy Upper North Shore. Lynette's a second generation real estate agent. In fact, she just told me that her dad was in the industry for 50 years and she's been at Chadwick now for over 10 years herself. Ranked number 40 in Australia in the real estate business top 50 women for 2016 and 17, 18 as well. Hopefully, Hopefully, just put my my entry in. Right, okay. So her success in the luxury market has seen her set records for the highest ever residential sale on the Upper North Shore. How much was that for, Lynette? Uh, 13 million. Wow. What do you get for 13 million? Um, A lot of land and not much view up there. Wow. So (laughs) just heaps of land. How big was the block? Uh, Block size was uh, just over an acre, so 4,000 square metres. 4,000 square metres, I presume tennis court, pool, golf court, little mini mini golf course. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) driving range, yeah. 13 million. Okay, I won't ask you who bought it. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us. We'd love your insights into what makes buyers tick and how you get the results that you do. So how many investors buy in the Upper North Shore or is it mainly an owner-occupier market? Um, Our market's really driven by the schools. So interestingly enough, if you looked at a percentage of uh, investment buyers, it's probably only about a 5 to 10% share of our market. A lot of our market is families moving to the area for schools. And interestingly enough, a lot of people, as soon as their kids have finished year 12, moving out of the area. So Ah. I actually was a bit strategic when I decided to work up there because it's a market that's really not driven by the rest of the economy. It's a market driven by necessity. You know, people want to get close to schools. And then obviously it is a kind of isolated area from the city. So as soon as, you know, year 12's done, they're off to either the northern beaches or eastern suburbs and to a more cosmopolitan lifestyle versus (laughs) versus the leafy one. So they... (laughs) unplug their own life basically while the kids are at school and then plug it back in. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I'm going against the grain. I actually live at Avalon and so I travel an hour every day to drop my daughter to school on the Upper North Shore. Oh, she goes to PLC wow. and go to work. I like having that division between work and home. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I, I said before my, my father was in real estate for 50 years and I used to be the daughter, you know, we'd go down and get a milkshake and we'd be at the shop for an hour while he spoke to every single person he knew in the area. 
And I very quickly realised that I didn't want to put my daughter through the same thing. Where was that? He had his own business in the Hills District, so he was based in Northmead. But he was, you know, one of the old school guys. He was a fireman and a real estate agent and everyone knew him. Wow, that's, that is interesting, actually. My daughter really hates it when I walk down the street of Balmain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mom, you know everybody. Real estate's boring. Exactly. And yeah. they just look up at you and just, you, you know, it's going to be at least 10 minutes because you can't be rude to the client in front of you. So that division, I mean, it's a long way, an hour in the morning, an hour in the afternoon. and Yeah, yeah so you do, you've effectively done the opposite of what your buyers are doing. Yes, absolutely. Even though I tell them it's so much easier. <laughs> Yeah, and that's actually interesting too. You're the first real estate agent I think I've ever met that didn't just come out telling me how great the area is. It just was just basically how great people think the schools are. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a need to be there though. So there's a definite need to be yeah, there. That's good. And that's interesting churn too. I guess that, that then means that there's every year there's going to be a new lot moving in and a new lot moving out. Absolutely. If I can figure out how to get the year 12 list of people graduating and their parents' names and addresses, I've got to start bribing the schools, I think. If I could just get that one list, I'd, I'd have probably... <laughs> You know, 40 sales lined up for spring. Of the youngest child, obviously. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. they've got three more to go. Well, you're still going to be hanging around for a few years. Well, that is rather interesting because there is a lot of talk. I often have people ask me, well, how much does being in a certain school catchment area push up prices? Now, you've got mm. private schools and public schools up there and obviously private schools doesn't matter about the catchment area but obviously right. ease of access to the school is important. What, what impacts on that, you know, are there streets that where one side is worth more than the other, for instance? Absolutely. And it's it's really territorial in the Upper North Shore. So there's a couple of primary schools in particular that have talented and gifted programs. And the demand for those schools is out of control. So St Ives North Primary Catchment is one example because they have that stream of education. And we have buyers that will literally come to the open home and say, is it in the catchment? Yes or no. And that will determine as to whether or not they'll put an offer in. I had a buyer specifically ask me, they had a budget of two million. They didn't care what the house was as long as it was in the catchment. And we found them something within two weeks and they bought it. Mm. It was essentially a knockdown, but they now have an address close to the school. So it it always amazes me the Upper North Shore is is so school-driven and particularly those catchment areas, you know, as you said, one side of the road versus the other, it can really determine, you know, in some instances 10 to 20% of the wow. property's value. That's a big, big, big difference. Because, of course, these catchment areas can move too, can't they? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And and sometimes the, there's obviously restrictions placed on the mm. students they can accept. So, you know, I'd, I'd hate to be selling a house to a family that then couldn't actually get their child into the school. So, so there's paying it a premium to get your child into the school. But if you've got to be pretty careful then if you're buying on the very edge of that catchment area, you may not have the same value or the house may lose value in time if the catchment area shrinks and they do shrink for these schools they do and look and I'm I'm pretty open with people I often say look why don't you rent in the area until you know your child is going to be happy at that school especially in primary school mm. or prep school mm. you know you, you're changing up your whole life you're buying an asset and if it doesn't work out in 12 months time what are you going to do sell again so renting a property in the area until they get comfortable it's, it's sometimes a suggestion I make to them and they haven't even thought about it yet isn't that interesting I want to talk more about that but you basically said that only about 5 or 10% of property is held by investors anyway. So mm. are there many properties that they can rent? Um, it, it is 
fairly tightly held up there. Chadwick has the largest property management database on the Upper North Shore. So we've, we manage about 12 or 1300 property managements. Our vacancy rate is, is pretty low though. Mm. And, you know, properties lease on average within two weeks of, of going to market, assuming they're obviously uh, put at the right sort of rental income. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't <laughs> so just charge whatever around. you want. <laughs> okay, so you suggest to people that well, why don't you rent, why don't you just try before you buy and make sure that it's the right thing for you, your family, your child, et cetera, et cetera, and you say that you're surprised that most of them haven't thought about it. Why do you think they haven't thought about it? I think they're so hell-bent on getting a property in the area. And, you know, in those catchments, it's it's often properties that don't come up often. I think they really want that security and the safety of knowing that their child is definitely going to get in because particularly in our area, we do have a lot of um, Asian buyers as well and they're very focused on where their friends' children are going to school uh, and they don't want to miss out. So I find that they put the pressure on themselves. I mean, it's mm. great as a real estate agent because, yeah. you know, if you list something in a catchment area, it's, you know, it's almost a guaranteed sale. But I think that level of expectation or keeping up with the Joneses for a lot of people in the area is, uh, is important. And interestingly enough, I often find too on the Upper North Shore, it, it's about, you know, it's almost looked down upon if you're renting versus owning. Mm. Um, yeah. Sending my daughter to a private school, um, Everyone knows where you live, what you own, and where you're going on holidays next. Oh, it's awkward, isn't it? <laughs> it is a bit. My daughter's about to go to private school next year. I'm thinking maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you just There's always a group that are normal within the rest of the bunch. The normal you group. You've just got to find the normal group. Yeah. I like to think I'm in the normal group. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I've seen the same sort of pressure that people put themselves on, you know, eastern suburbs, inner west, lower north shore, upper north shore. You see that pressure that people put on themselves, usually when their first child is around about the age of four and they're about to be going into kindergarten and in the next year and they start going to an anxiety mode. And it's really horrible because I look at it and think, you know what, yes, I felt the same anxiety when my daughter went to school, but it's okay. Yeah. Actually, they're very resilient, these kids. And there is good things about lots of schools and there are bad things about every school as Absolutely. well. And they don't realise that. I mean, I was fixated on a particular type of school and I got her in there and then it was when she was older I realised, oh, it's great when she was little and not so great when she was big. So Correct. people find it hard, I guess, to pull themselves out of that anxiety-provoking state and that's what really is driving your market by the sounds of it. Absolutely. So, mm. yeah, no, I think everyone, sometimes it's it's helpful for everyone to just step back and actually work out what's going to be best for their family too. Mm. I mean, often I see people going into properties that I don't really think suit the family dynamic just because of the position. Mm. So, And that is interesting because as a sales agent, you know, you've got a job to do. You've got to sell that house. Absolutely. So even though you might think to yourself, really, I don't think you're going to be as happy as you think you are. Yeah. How do you go about that? I mean, it's not your job to make, well, it isn't your job to make sure they get the right home. No, definitely not my job to comment on it, but I guess it's interesting to find out their motivation. You know, how desperate are they to, to actually just get the property at that point in time? Mm. Or can they wait another six months and see what's coming on in spring. I'm dealing with buyers at the moment that are, you know, that are almost settling. And, and of course, I'd never talk them out of buying a property, but I guess you also have to give them an indication of what's yet to come. Like, for example, I'm dealing with buyers at the moment. It's the middle of school holidays. There's no stock. Mm. I've got, you know, a flush of stock that'll come on the moment schools go back. 
And buyers from out of area don't understand how that <laughs> upper north shore market works mm. because most of the other markets, you know, the moment you're ready, you just get the property onto the market. Um, imagine in Bondi, they're not operating around the same mm. sort of parameters. But the North Shore, you know, winter is dead, particularly this school holiday break or, you know, that sort of mid-year July school holiday break where everyone goes away. There's yeah. no buyers and certainly no, not many properties on the market. So I do sort of say to them, look, you know, there will be quite a few more coming. Um, if this is the right one, great. Mm. Now, of course, this podcast is called The Elephant in the Room for two reasons. One is because we like to talk about the things that nobody else talks about, and this is definitely one of them, and I thank you very much for that. But the other side of that, the other aspect of that is that the elephant is a metaphor for our subconscious mind, and some experts have argued that it, it could be up to 80% of our decisions are actually driven by our unconscious mind, not our rational conscious mind. And this is a perfect example, isn't it, of where people are driven by fear and whether it be that idea of a scarcity mindset that they're really panicking that they're not going to be able to provide their child with the education that they think that their child needs or their future and sometimes they're actually thinking they won't get into the university <laughs> they want and they won't be able to get the career they want and there's this sort of <laughs> high-pinched, anxious voice in their head driving them. Absolutely. I mm. like to blame the unconscious mind when I go shopping. But, um. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably, you know, largely at fault. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, it, it really is true and, and this is the old adage, you, you spend such a short amount of time researching and buying a property versus if you were to go and buy a car, for example. You mm. take it for a test drive. You know, you, I, I asked my sales guy if I could borrow it for a few days yeah. just to, you know, see how it works. I yeah. realised the two-door coupe doesn't really work when you're trying to do school drop-off with school bags. But, you know, we don't spend that much time in properties. And I think, interestingly enough, this morning I had uh, a lady who lost her husband about six years ago. She's moving from a big house in Warunga looking at an over 55s apartment with me. It's a three-bedroom apartment. It's really nice. And she came through yesterday to the open house and she had her two granddaughters with her, which ironically caused an absolute ruckus. The poor thing was beside herself. Anyway, <laughs> we got through that and she was fine. But then she rang me this morning and said, look, I'd really like to come back and I'd like to bring my daughter. And she spent all morning apologising to me as to, I didn't mean to put you out and I'm really sorry, but it's a big decision. And I was just like, you can take all the time. And I go, you know, it's only just come onto the market. Mm. I said, this is the time to do your research. And she's like, oh, well, I've got a friend who's a builder. Is it okay if he comes? I'm like, of course it's okay. Like, it's interesting. She was so apologetic for taking more time to come back and see this property. Mm. It's such a big decision for her. Yeah. You know, and I'd suggested yesterday, bring your daughter because her daughter's driving the move for her to downsize. Yeah. And she's like, oh, could you do it outside of open home times? So I'm like, of course we can. But it's interesting. They... People, I think, get that sense of urgency and decision-making is mm. is really quite cumbersome for them. Yeah, it can go both ways, can't it? I mean, some people take so long to make a decision that they'd never make a decision. Yeah. Um, and then others make them so quickly and you think, oh, my God, did you take a moment? Did you actually take a breath in exactly. that whole, just think of the magnitude of what you're about to commit yourself to. Yeah. And if it's not right, you are going to be living with regrets. Absolutely. I, I sold a property to someone in January and four months later they called me and went, actually, our son's moving back in. This doesn't work for us. Okay. And thought that maybe that might happen. And then <laughs> they were like, oh, can we get the purchase price plus stamp duty plus agents fees and marketing fees back? Yeah, um, no. Probably not, no. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you should have thought of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd, you know, I can be a bit callous impatient, I guess, with people because I think why people rush these decisions. 
Because it because like you say, that's January. We are recording this in July. Yeah. You know, six months later, um, they've realized, oh, we don't have enough rooms because our sons come back to home to haunt us. <laughs> yeah. I know I was like, you should just tell them it's sorry, there's no room. That's exactly right. I mean, but there's you know, there's there's other things that people need to do as well. They need to go and get therapy <laughs> before they let their kids leave or come back. <laughs> Ah, oh, dear. But, yes, that, that is interesting. How many people would you think actually do buy the wrong home? Um, I think I, I think there's buyer remorse and I think that that needs to be isolated from buying the wrong property because often I have buyers call me, even if they I had one a couple of weeks ago, where this lady I've been helping for six months, you know, she bought a property at auction and called me the next morning freaking out, asking me if I could help her ring the agent and try and get out of the contract. Um, I calmed her down and said, buy remorse. That, that's that's kind of mm. a normal emotional process. I said, leave it a few days. She rang me and she was like, oh, no, it's actually fine. We're really excited about it now. I was just yeah. panicking. But I think probably 5 to 10% of people that that buy this, I mean, circumstances change. Mm. But if you purely look at people that have bought the house for a timing um, example mm. rather than, you know, just to try and avoid renting or trying to move twice or I, I think a lot of people settle, yeah. Right? Whether or not they admit that, because a lot of people then stay there for the next ten years just mm. to just to just because, yeah. Um, they don't want to do it again. But I'd say maybe, yeah. Well, yeah. that's the thing. I mean, that's the thing about real estate. No one wants to move. You identify that you don't want to be where you are, or you need to be somewhere else, and the whole process in between. Um, Josh Fegan, uh, my my trainer, says if you could just put a bu- push a button and someone does everything else in the middle for you, everyone'd be so happy. Yeah, no one wants to go to open homes. No one wants to talk to real estate agents. Well, that's what we do, buyers agents. <laughs> Hello, <True>. listeners. <laughs> if you want to push a button, that's what we do for you. <laughs> I Josh Fegan, well I need to talk you. to him, don't I? I'm like, hello, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, what I find. All jokes aside, is that you know I've got a bit of a saying: is in limbo is no place to live, Absolutely. and yet people do spend years and years in limbo, vacillating between you know should I renovate the house? Should I move into a different area? Oh well, what if my son comes home? What <laughs> what if this? What and and they bounce around usually inside their own heads. Often, mm. it, or they might even go out there and get plans drawn up for their property and spend 50 grand and then realising that they'll never get what they want. Oh, the or, amount of properties that I sell and people go, oh, we had these plans drawn up by an mm. architect five years ago. And I'm like, well, did you? Oh, no, we decided not to do it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, why? <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll give them to the next person to go and live your dream, shall we? And how many people buying a property with plans approved actually go ahead and build the plans approved? Everyone changes their mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So, yes, yeah, so I think that, you know, as I said, I observed that people do spend quite a lot of years in angst, but there's also couples. You're dealing with a lot of families, so therefore mm. you've got husbands and wives or how many wives and wives and husbands and hus- husbands do you have up there? <laughs> Not as many. Not as many as we do where <laughs> I live. a very conservative market. <laughs> yes. So let's predominantly husbands and wives. Um, and ex-wives and ex-husbands. <laughs> and ex-wives and ex-husbands. And there's, there's a you know, usually two stakeholders in a purchase. Correct. Um, how do you find or how do you observe couples in that whole purchasing process? I find it really interesting. I, I think um, as an agent, it's interesting to see when a couple will walk into an open home, for example, there's a dynamic usually and mm. they don't realise they're, they're sort of giving a dynamic away. Often often it's the wife walking around who's really excited and, you know, the husband's looking at his phone and 
you know, couldn't be less interested or vice versa. And, you know, you quickly realise if the decision maker isn't the one that's interested in the property, it doesn't matter how many times they come back to that house, it's never going to happen. But I I actually think it's easier as a female agent to sometimes get to the bottom of what's actually happening. Um, I find a lot of women are the decision makers in the family home. It's their nest. It's their their sort of environment for the family. Um, And particularly it it comes out when uh, families sell a home it's a far more emotional decision for usually the wife than it is for the husband. You know, they're very practical. It's, it's about the finances. Mm. And that's not to say that the women aren't contributing to, to, you know, the finances of the household. It's more that I find the whole process of moving or buying and selling for women is far more engaged than it is for, for most guys. And I think as a female agent, it, it's... I think we're a little bit more approachable to understanding, you know, what's actually going on for the women making these decisions. Mm. So, so you're a bit of an ally. Yeah. And I, I also think too that, you know, there's a bit of a trend for the the, the sharp, slick suits out there. Um, and I think sometimes it's a little bit they're almost unapproachable um, mm. in a way. So I think the reason why I've been so successful or, I, you know, I, I really enjoy what I do is because I can actually just, deal with them on a, you know, either a a mother to mother level or a, you know, woman to woman level and actually understand what's going on for them emotionally. Mm. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Because I've observed certainly when you've got a bit more of the traditional family unit that if the husband is working full time and committing to the city for argument's sake, therefore they're not spending as much time in the home Mm. and the things that are important for the husband or the person that is doing that, and obviously, but let's talk about the traditional setup yeah. here, um, versus the wife who is in the home, the access to school, the convenience, access to friends, parks, shops, connectivity, those sorts of things really drive the woman's decision. And obviously, the type of home and can you do things you want, can you decorate the way I want, all that sort of thing. Um, the husband's thing often is. I'm the one sitting on that train, going to the office, spending all those hours in the office, earning all the money. I'm going to be working until I'm 80 paying this thing off. Um, you know, and they're worried that that their money's being spent for them. Yeah. And also that their entire weekend's going to be taken on lawns and pool duty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's people for that. But it, it's interesting, that push and pull, I always find it interesting when you've got um, kids going to a certain school and the mum's trying to be as close to that school, mm. but then also the husband's trying to be as close to the, the city. Station. Uh, or yeah. the city, yeah, yeah. and stuff as mm. possible and I always find it interesting. I'm like, oh, who's going to win this little yeah. battle? Who do you think wins no, normally? Uh, nine times out of ten, I think it's the women. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And how do they do it? Look, I, I think, what, what's that saying? Happy wife, happy life. Um, I think at the end of the day what you said, you know, that, that commute back into, you know, to from school or the extracurricular activities, you know, if you're commuting into the city for work, you're only doing it, you know, there and back mm. during the day. For a lot of women on the North Shore, you know, you've got rugby. And swimming lessons and diving and a lot of running around. Exactly. I'm not sure how sympathetic a lot of the listeners will be to this. No. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about traditional and up and offshore. Yeah, so we are. Go. We are. And I mean, this is a great thing. We've interviewed so many agents from, you know, from many different areas of Sydney, and we're going to have to expand this to Melbourne and Brisbane <laughs> and, and across the country. But um, for the moment, just even you know, digging into different dynamics of different areas of Sydney is is fascinating because. I, you know, I'm an urbanite, I have to mm-hmm. say. I, I, I t- try not to venture into the suburbs wherever possible. Um, 
tarnished, tainted by my own personal growing up experience. I think we're getting a bit personal here. Um, Not to say the suburbs aren't great places to bring up your family, but, you know, there are dynamics and drivers in different markets. And I think what you said also earlier about the out-of-area buyer that comes in mm. who is not familiar with the, the the rises and falls, the peaks and troughs, the movements, the, the seasonality of the market, and also I guess what the drivers are, you know, is that east side walk station? Isn't oh, that what gosh, a big thing on the, was, up on the shore? just about to bring that up. Yeah. Like, buyers don't know what east side walk rail is until they go to the up and north shore. <laughs> and there is a side of the highway you're supposed to be yep. on and a side of the highway if you tell your friends you live there, everyone sort of looks down their nose and goes, oh, and okay. You, you, you might, as an unwitting out of area, somebody's just got their kid into one of those schools and yep. they're moving there from another part of Sydney. Yep. They unwittingly buy on the wrong side of the tracks, <laughs> quite literally here. Uh, they may live to regret that. But it's interesting because um, I find agents in the area keep we keep uh, reinforcing this idea that there's an east side and a west side and really the only difference is that the train line's on the east side of the turning highway. Turning left or turning right. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I also find that agents will use that if you've got a property that's listed on, for example, the west side, mm. which is less desirable, they will tell buyers, you know, if your buyer goes to their open home and they, you know, they ask the question, what else are you looking at? Agents will just completely shut down the property based on whether it's east side or west side. So you're saying that, say, say for argument's sake, you are mm-hmm. selling something on the east side and a buyer comes through your property and mm-hmm. they say, oh, you say, what else are you looking at? And they say, oh, I'm also looking at this other property on the west side. You'll say... You're not from the area? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not from the area, are you? Of course, in that very knowing, <laughs> nodding, sage way. Oh, D, why, why? What do I need to know? Uh, so if they're unwitting or they haven't had that question put at them, they could unwittingly buy in an area that, uh, well, my, what, what about those poor people that, you know, have to sell their homes on the west side? <laughs> Who are they going to sell to? It depends on if I'm selling on the east or the west side how I would uh, advise a buyer. How you roll. <laughs> no, okay, there's all. a tip for buyers. Anyone listening to this? It depends what they're selling as to what you're going to hear correct, from the agent. Correct, correct. Um, but I, I find that interesting that this this archaic idea of, you know, where you should be or what side of the track you should be is still being perpetuated mm. now when if you don't need to be going to the station, the whole east side, west side discussion doesn't matter, doesn't matter at all. And in actual fact, there's sometimes better, much better value for money on mm. the west side. So, you know. That if- taps into the, that's once again the elephant, isn't it? That's the status, mm. you know, and, and we often don't want to admit that we want status, you know, and so there's a bit of shame, you know, lying underneath as well as another, another thing that's in the element, the, the elephant's half of the brain or part of the brain. The, the shame of, all oh, I, I do want status. I don't want to admit I want status. So it's, it's very conflicted. With yeah. buyers. And we'll just mortgage ourselves even further to the hilts mm. to make sure that we can keep up with the Joneses. Yeah. I mean, I think I think everyone just needs to work out what's best for their family and what's best for their actual situation. Um, and it's hard to do that um, as humans, I think, sometimes because you do want to be in the best street or, you know, you do want to give your kids the best of everything. Mm. I think everyone just needs to step back and go, well, what's actually going to work? for my family, hence why I still live at Avalon. I was about to say, you live in Avalon where maybe it's a little bit, a slightly different um, uh, mentality because, of course, to live in Avalon, you've got to 
prepared to go around the bends. Absolutely, <laughs> literally, literally go around the bends. Yeah. But, you know, and I think it's interesting because, I, you know, a lot of my friends and, and I sell, I'm very fortunate to sell really beautiful houses and everyone goes, oh, you know, how do you, you know, how do you cope seeing such beautiful houses? Don't you get envious or, you know, and I'm like, I have a little single level four bedroom house in Avalon, which is absolutely perfect for me. I can walk to the beach. I can walk down to the end of my street to Creel Bay and throw a fishing line in. And it's a simple life. And I, I think um, everyone just needs to get back to that a little mm. bit more. You know, you don't need the the five bedroom house with a guest bedroom on the on the ground floor with ensuite. And, you know, fine, that suits some people. But I think at the end of the day, it's nice to keep things a little bit more simple. It is. But, you know, our home is our castle, isn't it? And there is that idea that it says something about us. Mm. You know, what yours says about you is that, you know, I'm chill. Mm. You know, I'm quite happy to take a back seat. Um, whereas the people that are that are wanting the status side or they're wanting the home to be a symbol of their success and where they've got in life, that's a tough that's tough. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because saying that too on the Upper North Shore, there's a real trend for street frontage for some buyers versus battle acts. Mm. And again, it's that um, for some of them, I'm not saying broadly generalising mm. here, um, but some people, they want others to to be able to see uh, what they've achieved, which, mm. is, which is really nice for some. As long um, as they have achieved, it's not just blowed to the hilt. It's <laughs> <laughs> stress, stress. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. it's interesting because then we'll have a, you know, a type of buyer that won't want a battle axe and a type of buyer, interestingly enough, some people like their privacy. And yeah. So some of the nicest homes on the North Shore, and to one last night, where it was down a driveway. I'd mm. never sort of been down there and walked down and just went, wow, you never would have known it was here. Yeah. We actually, um, one of my team bought a property in Pimble for a client about 18 months ago now, mm-hmm. and it's a battle axe. Yeah. And they moved there from the inner west and they also wanted they wanted three-generational three home. Yes. You know, it was important to them, um, three generations, but it's like a little country estate. Yeah. It's so beautiful. You even cross a bridge to get there. That's um, incredible. I yeah. reckon I know which one you're talking oh, about. Oh, there you go. You <laughs> might, you might. And, but, yeah, it's magical. Yeah. And it's a very, very different setup to, yeah, you know, having my imposing which in a way is quite masculine in, in some ways, isn't it, is. it? Maybe that's how the, the wife gets the husband on the side. <laughs> look, look, honey, we can tell everyone how successful you are at your job. Exactly. <laughs> Park the Porsches in the circular driveway. <laughs> <laughs> in the gravel driveway. Oh, dear. I've, I, I started, I asked you one question, really. No, I asked you a number, but only one that I actually had. Um, I've just run, run that a Yeah, tangent, because, so. you know, if I, if I start working through the next questions that I had to ask you, we have actually covered a lot of them. Now, how do you identify the strongest buyer? So when you're selling a property, there's particularly in the current market, a lot of agents are saying there's one buyer that stands head and shoulders above the others. How do you, what are the signs they give you? Um, very good question. And in the, at the market at the moment, um, <laughs> I think the one question that needs to be asked is, are you finance approved? Mm. And you can pretty much figure out. So that's it the then. That's the of that. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's it. The, mm. the questioning um, from agents um, needs to change, I think. And at the moment, that's, I mean, that's un- in in most cases, the best buyer is the one that's actually got their finance organised. I, I had um, in the last couple of weeks, I've had buyers put forward offers that aren't actually in a position to sign a contract. Um, and I think we have to be very careful that um, as agents, we're not 
communicating that to vendors because there's there's levels of expectations that come with those offers that actually can't be backed up. Yeah, like I really like that house and I I, I, I pay $5 million for it mm-hmm. and then I go to the bank and the bank says, no, I'm going to give you $1 million. <laughs> uh, There's been so many conversations um, like that. You're not too far apart. Yeah. But um, identifying the best buyer, I often... I often find if they feel comfortable, um, they almost identify themselves. They're the ones that ask questions. They're the ones that come back. They're the ones that maintain an open line of communication um, mm. to the agent. And I think that makes it easy. I mean, th- there's this issue or this um, line of thinking that, you know, you keep your clients close to your chest. And I had one just recently where it was a property going to auction. It ended up selling a couple of days before because we really, really only had one buyer. Ooh, and yes. I had a buyer come out of the woodwork and go, well, I would have paid more. And at that point they'd been to the property. They hadn't returned any of my five phone calls. They hadn't asked for a contract and they hadn't indicated any interest. Mm. But they did take it upon themselves to call the owner of the house and express their frustration oh, to charming. the owner charming. as to the fact that they'd missed out. Mm. Thankfully the owner knew that I'd gone back to everyone yeah. multiple times and they said, well, if the agent didn't know you are interested, how do you think you are going to buy the property? And so thankfully that oh, didn't wow. end up on my shoulders. Yeah, I mean, look, I had that happen too when I was a selling agent. In mm. fact, it happened once when I was selling a friend's house. Oh, that was horrible, Yuck. horrible. But the thing was the guy had every opportunity to buy it prior and he didn't. He chose not to respond, like you say. But the thing is it's very easy to say I would have when Absolutely. you can't. Absolutely. Mm. Yep, or I would have paid more. I would have paid more. <laughs> and it's actually a nasty thing to say, particularly if they're calling the vendor. Yeah, absolutely. But in that Interesting that you said you had one buyer and so you sold a few days out from auction. What would have happened if you couldn't? Well, okay, how did you get that buyer to make an offer? Uh, uh, that's a uh, um, secret. No, just kidding. Um, no, look, uh, we we did say to <laughs> the buyer that the owner, it was actually a deceased estate and, the you know, the owners were looking to sell. They didn't necessarily want to run it to auction and they were happy to negotiate beforehand. <laughs> So, so are you then? I didn't invent any magical, mythical unicorn buyers that had made other offers right. against theirs, mm. but I did create a platform where they felt like they could actually make an offer comfortably before auction, and there was a possibility that if they got to the right level, it would be accepted. Um, and there was movement on their side, and movement on the vendor side, and it all worked out. But this, this is a very common theme. Um, in my business, I call it manufacturing the offer. And, you know, we look for certain signs that, oh, we're the only buyer here. Um, we love honesty with the with the selling agent with us because at the end of the day, we know it anyway. So exactly. it's like, well, you know, <laughs> just tell us the truth. Um, and so sometimes it's sport for us to yep. drag it out and actually go to auction. Yeah. Um, you know, if they're not going to be honest with us, great, excellent. Let's we're lucky out. we don't have too many buyers agents no. in our area. <laughs> so, but having said that, of the ones that we do have, um, the ones that are straightforward and honest and, you know, you say, look, we, we know that we're the only buyer. Mm. And I'm like, okay, well, let's work out a way that we can get a deal done. Well, that's exactly it. You know, yeah. our client wants to buy, your client wants to sell. Let, yeah. let's, let's make sure that we have a win-win here. So, so I like the fact, even though that you just volunteered, that yes, we didn't. We had one buyer. We a few days out of auction. We created a platform to use your words, so <laughs> so that um, that the offer, you know, there was an opportunity for the buyer to make an offer, a bit argy bargy, and you got the thing done. Mm. And I, I think a lot of buyers don't realise the power that they're in because they are 
fearful of auctions. And I guess in a way that's what you're tapping into, isn't it? Absolutely. I think that's a really accurate summary. I mean, at the end of the day, most owners don't want to go to auction and most buyers don't want to go to to auction. Agents love it. It's a simple (laughs) way of getting an unconditional deal across the line. Oh, yeah, it's quick and ripping off a band-aid. Yeah, exactly. And everyone goes home and opens the champagne. Mm. Um, But I do think that... um, And there is a skill involved in doing that because I think a lot of, um, I see a lot of newer agents bluff or, you know, use tactics that undermine their, um, I guess, undermine the whole situation, not only their Mm. own ethics. Um, And and when it doesn't work, it ends terribly for the owners and it ends terribly for the buyers. I think at the end of the day, in a market where we're dealing with fewer buyers, we have to be very careful. You know, we're facilitating a transaction. Mm. Our role is to, you know, obviously sell the property for the owner, but also not make it extremely painful, difficult or, you know, um, impossible Mm. for a buyer to be able to to actually make an offer and, and buy the property in an auction campaign that it ends up selling before. So you're laying out the steps effectively. So I heard this analogy recently, a totally different topic, but basically if you've got to cross a stream, you know, if someone lays out the stepping stones for you, it's going to be a hell of a lot easier to get to the other side. And I think that's that's a good metaphor for what you're talking about here because the reality is from a buyer's perspective, they find it hard to work out which agents they can trust, Absolutely. which agents laying out the stepping stones for them, which agent isn't. So how do you get cut through there? How do you try to establish that, yes, it's okay, guys, you can trust me? Yeah, I think it's hard and there's always going to be exceptions to that rule where people don't trust you because of their prior experience or, you know, or other or other agents that haven't done the right thing. Um, I think communication um, is the key. I mean, as much as you think you're being transparent, the more you can tell a buyer about what's going on in the process, I think the more that they can feel like they can make a decision. And I, I often get buyers asking, well, how many other offers are there or how many other contracts? And I'm like, well, don't worry about the contracts because that means nothing. Mm. Um, but I think talking to them about, you know, at the end of the day, we can't make them buy before auction if they choose that they want to run it through to auction. But I guess working with them to say, look, there's actually an opportunity here and being candid and communicating what's actually happening for the vendor. Um, you know, often it will be the vendor seen another property and there's a level of motivation that might not actually be there on auction day. <laughs> I spoke it like a true sales agent. <laughs> you know, there's but, uh, two things that you hear a lot of agents yeah. say, oh, you know, the vendor, they don't have to sell, but they have found something <laughs> they'd like to move on. That's one. So warning buyers, when agents say that, usually it just means they want to get an offer from you prior to auction and then yes. you're the only buyer. And the other one is, oh, we do have another offer from another buyer, but it's a six-month settlement, which is, <laughs> not really attra- yeah, which is not really attractive to the vendors. That's another warning buyers, um, you know, because they are, they're designed, both of those, those statements are designed to go, oh, okay, then I'll, well, I'll offer them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think too, again, just coming back to the detail and the communication, I think buyers can tell if, if agents are, are using those, those lines because, as you said, they are, you know, they are actually quite, Common. common. Yeah, so you've heard it before. Oh, that's really interesting because, you know, Joe and Sons around the corner, their agents say exactly the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, too, a lot of the buyers that that I work with or that we work with um, often do look for a period of time. And I think if you undermine your trust on one transaction, you won't be able to work effectively with them. And mm. I always say to agents, you know, I'm a partner in the business. I'm not going anywhere. My reputation is, you know, the people that we're selling to today are going to be selling in mm. 
Two, when three, their kids five, finish ten, year yeah, exactly. <laughs> Twelve years time in one month. Um, so I think getting that level of trust for a buyer is getting them to understand that I'm not in it for a transaction. I'm actually in it for you know this is this is my chosen career. This is where I'm going to be. So and I think if you've helped them or advised them um, around different properties or you've you've been working with them a little while, I think that communication and trust is easier to establish. So what about your buyers that bought in January, the sun's moved home and now they want to sell and they want to make back um, their stamp duty and and selling and buying costs? Um, How do they feel about you, do you think? Um, Look, interestingly enough, um, I said to them, look, and I I was really upfront with them. I said to them, look, I I think we can probably get back what you paid, but um, buyers unfortunately have access to information. They know what you paid in January. And um, you know, regardless of the fact that your personal circumstances have changed, they still know exactly what you've paid and we're going to be working against that. It's called an anchor. Yeah. Mm. And interestingly enough, after one inspection, I actually had an offer exactly in line with what they paid because the buyer goes, well, they paid that six months ago. The market's actually come down, so I'm actually doing them a favour <laughs> of giving them, you know, mm. what they paid. Then they decided to talk to a couple of other agents that promised them another three, four, or five hundred thousand on top of what they wow. paid. Mm. Um, unfortunately, the buyer that had made the offer with me had then just decided, well, if they want that much, we're not going to be interested and we're not going to hang around. Um, and then I said to the owners, look, if you want to pursue that other, you know, the extra money, go for it. Um, and I had a call from them about four weeks after going, actually, you were right. Um, so mm. I guess it's difficult that in a property transaction you've got agents uh, working against each other as much as you've got vendors and buyers um, with different agendas. I think, you know, it's it's difficult to get everyone on the same page. And also if you've got a scarce or you don't have many listings, then promising the world to get the listing. And that's one of the reasons why people don't like sales agents. Yep. It's like this self-perpetuating problem. Um, that is interesting too, because I find quite often one bad make, bad mistake or one bad decision around property then leads to a succession of bad decisions. Absolutely. And I think, you know, timing is everything. Um, and sometimes we're presented things that we're not ready or willing to accept. And there's an opportunity that, that you know, slips through. And now, as you said, the, for that particular owner, their motivation's now increasing because they'd made that decision that they wanted to sell and move on and find something else because of, you know, the sun moving home. Mm. And now there's a level of emotional panic and distress, thankfully for them not financial, but that could have possibly been avoided if they weren't led down a different path by people promising one thing and not being able to deliver. Well, that might be financial because, like you said, your buyer that made the offer of what they paid is gone and the next buyer may not offer that. So it's quite a high you know, chance of being financial. Mm. Um, we recorded an episode which is Australia's most famous property, Dumbo. <laughs> <laughs> so listeners, go back and listen to the Australia's most famous property, Dumbo episode. Basically, there's a very famous case in Australia of very famous people buying a property in the eastern suburbs and not completing on that sale. And they went to court. It was highly public and horrible. But when I started researching that, it actually stemmed back to earlier bad decisions, you know, mm. and basically buying the wrong property, then having to sell, having to sell it for less than you paid for it, 
you know, and it goes on and on and on and it snowballs. Um, so it wasn't actually one isolated problem, as no. it turns out. There's actually a series of bad mistakes. I think I counted up something like 16, 16 errors. Uh, and that's the ones that I could tell from reading the reports. Yeah, I'm right. familiar with that. And I think that they're not the only person that's gone down that path. No. There's plenty of other examples in the Sydney property market. Of that. Plenty of other examples. And so, what you know, part of the, the reason behind this podcast is to help educate listeners so that they can be more aware of the dire consequences of rushing into decisions like this and to just take a moment and make better decisions. Okay, so these people have not followed your advice, um, missed an opportunity there, fell for flattery or, or, mm. or false promises from other agents. So this is something that happens a lot in appraisals, right? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But owners want hope. Everyone mm. wants hope. Human beings want mm. hope. Even if it's against all odds, everyone yeah. would like hope, particularly when it means you going to you know, possibly make you more money. It's an elephant. The elephant's <laughs> rampant. Um, so how do you deal with that? We've asked quite a number of agents the same question, but I'm always interested to know, you know, how, look, you know, it's, it, there's no money in being right in this, in this <laughs> yeah. instance, is there? We've, a lot of um, agents that feel like they're doing the right thing by being as honest as they can um, are the ones that end up without the commission. Mm. Um, and and it's interesting because I, I unfortunately too often get that call where people go, oh, actually, you know, it's all what you thought it was worth. I'm like, yeah, that's great. Yeah, and thanks. I'm broke. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Glad you worked that out without mm. me um, being the one. Um, it's difficult to handle. I, I do spend a lot of time though when I sit down with people thinking about selling um, and be quite analytical around the pricing. Mm. Um, I was I was at a house last night for an hour and a half actually just focusing on pricing because they'd seen four agents and been told such a gamut of different pricing mm. um, and with agents trying to substantiate it saying they've got white and I'm just like let's actually just drill down and work out what we think the house is worth. Mm. Um, and interestingly enough an agent had used another property that I'd sold down the road for let's say $400,000 more than their house and the owner was so emotional she said to me why don't you think our house is yeah it isn't worth that why isn't our house as good as that one that mm. you sold and I said in actual fact that was a moment in time it was over 12 months ago so it's a different market yeah but I said we also got very lucky we had two buyers wanting it and they just fought it out and I'd love to promise you that same scenario this time around and if it happens I'll probably be your best friend but I'm not going to sit here and promise mm. you what I got for them because First of all, that was 12 months ago and that was, you know, it was the perfect storm for that particular mm. owner. So helping people. And then she kind of relaxed. I think she she felt horrible that I didn't believe in her house as much as yeah. I managed to achieve for the other one. You hear that a lot, you know, oh, they don't believe in my property and and that's so weird really when you think about it. No one believes in anyone's property. But <laughs> <laughs> they don't believe in my property. You're um, usually the one that believes in it the most and yeah. sometimes you're the best buyer and I've used that line a couple of times. With yeah. It's like yeah. currently you are the best buyer for your house. You so can buy your home back yeah. at any time. That's what the vendor bid is all yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't change the fact that it's a very awkward conversation to have and for owners who want to sell, mm. they have to be prepared to have that conversation Another question I often ask agents. So you've got a you've got a vendor. You've got two vendors. They've both got equally fantastic homes. You've got one that really has overpriced it in the head, and you've got another one that's really realistic. Mm. The person who's overpriced in their property often thinks that they're going to get more money because they're pushing you to quote a higher price. 
right? How, who do you think actually gets the best money? Uh, the person that's actually meeting the market. Because if buyers don't see value, they're not going to engage with a property. And I think particularly in a changing market, there's real danger in positioning a property too high because buyers will stand away from it and then you end up chasing the market backwards. Mm. And, you know, there's that age-old adage that, you know, if a property has been on the market for a certain period of time, it goes stale and stagnant and, you know, no one wants what no one else wants. Yeah. So, And they don't know that the only reason that nobody wanted it was because it was overpriced. Correct. Yeah, I used to say to my vendors, you know, back in the day when I was selling and, and you know, I sold between 2000 and 2006. So the first three years for me, boom, the <laughs> second three years were bust. Um, and we often had that conversation. It was like, well, the thing is that buyers think there's something wrong with the property. Now, they don't know what is wrong with it. They can't see what's wrong with it. They figure everyone else knows what's wrong with it. They're the only idiot that doesn't know what's wrong with it. They want a discount so that when they do find out what's wrong with it, they actually feel like they didn't pay too much. Correct. Even though there's actually nothing wrong with it. It's a perfect summary. Perfect summary. (laughs) So uh, it's all psychology. Yep. It's all psychology. So. Okay, so you've got vendors that are still being flattered into, into listing their property. Now, from a buyer's point of view, where are the opportunities lie in that? So, you know, a buyer walks... So buyers, firstly, should not, well, they should go through properties that are overpriced, right? Absolutely. I I always think you should go, you should create your own context. Mm. And I think that's probably the best advice to any buyer is, you know, actually walk in and and go probably a couple hundred thousand under and a couple hundred thousand over, or Mm. if not more. In terms of your search parameters, you mean? Of what your budget is, and then figure out where value lies because, you know, and and I think a lot of our buyers in our market, I always laugh because you'll have properties that are in the market for, say, um, one and a half million or five million and you like you go and open the first one and a buyer comes through and they'll follow you to the next one that's five million. <laughs> and I sit there going, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, which one are you going to buy? Yeah, exactly. What, what price range are you in? But they're, they're actually like you. The- <laughs> they're like you're the Pied Piper and the little mice are following you around. No, it is, it is very flattering when you <laughs> see them like five times. I'm like, you should have just stayed in my car. I could have driven you around. Oh, they just love looking at property exactly. maybe. But I think they're the smartest buyers because mm. they end up then when they find something, then they, they can be confident that, you know, the the agent or the owner hasn't necessarily priced it to a point that's beyond where the market should be. They've got, they've got context. Now, from a buyer's perspective, so, I, you know, there's ways to make offers, aren't there? Now, if you go through a property and it's worth 400000 less than the asking price, what is going to be gained by offering what it's worth? Um, that's interesting. Um, I think there's a lot to be gained for the agent because in my mind, no offer, no decision for the vendor. Um, but I think too, there's a real danger on how that offer is communicated to the vendor, um, and how the agent communicates it Mm. to the, to the vendor. That can mean the difference as to whether or not a deal can be done later on down the track. I always say to buyers, there's goodwill involved in any deal. Um, and by goodwill, I mean that you can offer a, uh, a number that you think it's worth, but the way the agent handles delivery of that offer um, could mean the difference as to whether or not that owner will end up wanting to engage with you or not. Or if you're the best, you know, best bidder at auction, uh, then perhaps that might mean as to whether or not they just pass it in or actually want to negotiate. Wow. Mm, now, I love that. That's an elephant in the room conversation because, and one of the things we do in our business, we profile agents before we start negotiating and we do think that whole thing through. Mm. How is this going to be packaged up 
and given to the vendor. And there are times when, you know, as we're brainstorming with my team and we, we actually hold back from making offers even though our clients are ready for that exact reason. Now, for a buyer out there, okay, obviously, you know, you're the type of agent, you're going to be managing your vendor's expectations. You're going to have your vendor in the right headspace. And even if your vendor is overpriced, mm. you know, the conversations you're going to be having, obviously, are going to be, you know, aimed at getting them to be ready to sell. Set to sell is one of the sayings that's right. often used, right? Yeah. Now, okay, but there are there are agents out there that are not capable of doing that. Yep. And I think too, sometimes their ego gets caught up in defending the property's yes. price. In or- fact, one of our profiles is called a defender. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> mm. um, and I see that all the time. Mm. And and it it's going to be very difficult for a deal to be done. And often the buyer doesn't know. I mean, they don't. They they assume it's their offer that's that's been mm. the issue. But in actual fact, it's most of the time the way it's delivered. So yeah. I've had really clever buyers agents in the past um, produce a, a letter about the family and mm. what it would mean to them and you know sometimes that makes uh, a difference as to okay the offer is less but here are the reasons why yeah trying to appeal to tap into some the elephant of the vendor yes, in this case that's right not the elephant yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was going down this strange little path there we'll just not go down that path so okay that's one way around it, you know, putting forward a bit of a sob story, you know, positioning <laughs> yourself or putting a human element to you as the offerer rather than trying to have the vendor feel insulted by your offer, yeah. which can back them in a corner and actually make it impossible to do a deal with them. Correct. Um, that's one way. Do you think that that's something that might work in the area in which you're selling? Because obviously families, you know, these people have raised their children in these homes, homes, there's a bit more of an emotional you know, element to the actual sale as well in terms of what they're passing or they're leaving behind? Absolutely. I think that's obviously one way to, to go about it. But I guess the other way as a buyer is to ask the agent how you think that's going to go with with the vendor and actually ask them how they're going to deliver that offer. You know, is it something that do they want you to send an email mm. with some context around what comparable sales you're drawing upon? You know, is it something that they're going to handle for you? Ask, you know, if you know it's well away from where the vendor wants, mm. perhaps ask the question of, of the agent, well, how's this going to be delivered to the owner? Yeah. Um, because I think, and you'll get an indication pretty quickly from the agent's energy or the way that they're dealing with your offer as to how they're likely to handle it. Sometimes you actually just have to wait for that property to come up with another agent, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that often happens. It does. <laughs> it does. And sometimes, and that is actually has been a deliberate strategy on our part on the odd occasion yep. um, because you just think this is never going to happen. No. It's never going to happen with that agent. Bashing your head against the same wall. Mm, yeah, we're best off to keep our hat, cards in our, our money in our wallet and our cards in our cards close to our chest. chest. And all my metaphors and analogies <laughs> are just going. To, need another coffee. <laughs> I, need, I need Chris here today. <laughs> Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Lynnet, help our listeners out here. Give us an example of a property dumbo. Yeah, I was uh, coming in here today trying to decide which which Perla in particular I would focus <laughs> on. Um, but I think most recently, and it's happening quite often, I don't know if it's a North Shore thing or if it's a general uh, market thing, but I've got buyers not doing building and pest inspections on really? properties before they're buying. Now. 
in this market where they've got time and there's no FOMO, no fear of missing out. Where there's time and where their solicitors are asking them the question, have you done a pre-purchase inspection on this property? Why aren't they doing it? I I'm still trying to work it out. I've I've heard of instances of agents putting so much pressure on a buyer to bring a signed contract, an unconditional contract, and a, and a check before five pm, and not allowing them time to do that. Um, but also, I've I've had buyers say to me that they're not wanting to do it. I had one not that long ago where it was a reasonably new house; uh, it had only been you know just completed, and so their take on it was, well, we're not going to bother doing a building and pest; it'll all be fine. I'd argue you might need to do one for more reasons on a brand new house than, than an older house. Absolutely, but I think um, still to this day I I find that's probably one of the most costly, risky dumbos that any buyer can do in mm. any marketplace ever yep. is not do one of those. And I, I just think, and from an agent's perspective, a lot of agents are happy that they don't do it because it's less complication or less. No hurdle you know, to be cleared on that one. Correct, yeah. one less hurdle. But I think everyone needs to remember that there's no perfect property and they need to go in with their eyes open. So that's probably the biggest one I've seen recently. Wow. And that's a double dumbo in my view because <laughs> the market conditions are such that allow you the time to do all of your due diligence. It is not the time to be cutting corners. And, in fact, I don't, I don't think you should ever buy a house without building and pest inspection anyway. It doesn't matter how good it looks. Correct. There can always be something and you just want to make sure there's nothing lurking generally underneath. Or on the top, if it's a, it's water is usually the problem, whether yep. it goes up or down. <laughs> That's right. Well, look, Lynette, thank you so much for your time. Now, I really appreciate your frankness and honesty, and uh, we've had some fabulous insights into what makes the Upper North Shore property market tick. Um, and I, yes, I have found that very, very interesting. Oh, it's good. I'll probably cop a little bit of flack, but anyway, that's yes, okay. you've been very brave. <laughs> <laughs> so, how would people find you if they need to get in touch with you? So, best way uh, is through Chadwick Real Estate, our website, or if they'd like to email me, it's lmalcolm at chadwickrealestate.com.au or my mobile, 0414. 386-336. It's usually attached to me. It's still attached to me in uh, in our conversation now. Yes, yeah, on silent. I've been seeing it light up periodically. Look, thank you so much. We'll put the link uh, in the show notes to your profile page and to thank the website. You. And once again, thank you so much for joining us. It's been very, very insightful. I'm sure that our listeners will have gained a lot of practical tips in terms of negotiation in particular. So thank you once again. Pleasure. Thanks, Veronica. Now, please tune in for our next episode when we interview negotiation expert Fiona McKenzie. Now, this whole interview is like a masterclass in negotiation strategy and tactics. I can't tell you how much I loved it. The theory and the practice and the principles and the frameworks will absolutely help me negotiate better and they'll help you negotiate better. So please tune in. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Be aware, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, 
please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances.